0: Hey, players, welcome back to part four of our four-part series with Ken Mead, the lead investigator from Las Vegas Metro for the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival mass shooting, the largest one in U.S. history that happened on October 1st, 2017. We appreciate you guys following along so far. We really appreciate your support on this. One way you can help us out is head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars, put your comments in there, share this with people. This is the only interview ever done with the lead investigator for this horrific crime. And it will be the only one for the foreseeable future. So this is an exclusive. We're the only ones that have got this. We'd love for you guys, if you would share this with other people, also head on over to our website, game of crimes, uh, We've got our merch list there. We've got our book list there. Also follow us on social media at game of crimes on Twitter, game, of Crimes podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Also go to Game of Crimes over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a lot of premium content there in addition to our free content we have here. Also, Game of Crimes fans. Go to facebook.com, type in Game of Crimes fans. Our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, is running that group for us. We have a lot of interesting discussions there. But let's get back, this is part four, the final part of our four part series of our interview with Ken Mead, the lead investigator for the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival, the largest mass shooting in US history. So, um, but you mentioned though, during the, you, so you talked about in the interviews, you went from being cordial, you know, to being confrontational. What was the strategy behind getting a little bit confrontational? What, what was, what had changed or what were you looking to accomplish?
1: So I think, you know, after probably the third or fourth interview, um, you know, my bosses were not, it, it's very difficult to convey a feeling in the room, right? A a hunch or your gut feeling, right? Unless you're actually experiencing it, right? And dealing with somebody, um, you know, it's hard for me to say this is what this person is like unless you're actually in the room. And so, you know, when I would go back to my supervisors at the police department and brief them on the case... They were still under the impression that, no, 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 she's a person of interest, she's a suspect, somebody needs to be arrested for this, somebody needs to, you know, take the, the fall for this, somebody needs to take the hit, you know, we need somebody, right? As I don't want to say the scapegoat, but somebody needs to be uh, held accountable for this behavior, right? Yeah, I, and So I,
0: I got to stop you there for a second, too, because, see, to me, that's one of the dangers, right? You get some political objective or other stuff says, we got to hold somebody accountable for this, and all of a sudden, they have an outcome they want, and now they want you to become the instrument to achieve that outcome, which is we got to charge her with something. It's like that skews the whole, I'm not trying to dog your administration, but I mean, what possession, you know, my guess, question to them, I guess, would be Chief Skippy or whatever your name is. What possession, you know, what information are you in possession of that I'm not that leads you to this conclusion that you can definitively say she's involved?
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, you know, everybody that was on our police department was reading the same material online. They were seeing the same conspiracies that were coming out. They were seeing the same stuff on Facebook that was coming out about, you know, his involvement or her involvement or whatever. And so, you know, they were, I think inevitably, right. It influences you at some point, right. About what's going on. And I think, you know, our bosses realized that, you know, you know, unfortunately we had the the largest mass shooting in our city, right. Which no sheriff or police chief wants to have happened under their watch. Right. um, So I think part of the battle, you know, the interview itself is fine, right? I mean, the interview is easy for me because she's cooperative, right? She gave me whatever I wanted. She signed consent to search whatever I wanted and gave me whatever medical records I wanted and answered any questions, any hour, day of the night, whatever I wanted. She was at my beck and call to the attorney. No problems there, the balance was was that a lot of times you know again I would f- I would leave Vegas and I would call her attorney and say listen I'm coming to interview her I'll be there in you know an hour or so and this is our time um, and he would say she's not a person of interest right she's not a suspect right and I would say no she's good I can assure you we're fine we're coming there to interview her as a witness and then I would fly to uh, L.A. and somebody uh, would say something about her being a person of interest on you know in the media. And so then by the time I landed, now the attorney was pissed off at me because he says, you just told me she's not a person of interest, but your boss got on TV. One of your bosses got on TV and said, she's a person of interest. So I constantly had to kind of counteract what was getting portrayed in the media versus what actually was going on in those interview rooms. Right. Cause I was comfortable. I knew what was going on. I knew that I wasn't going to arrest her. I knew there was no involvement in it, but I was getting pressure um, from uh, supervisors about we want her, one of the big things was we want her to take a polygraph. And, you know, of course I call her attorney and said, Hey, uh, my department wants her to take a polygraph. And her attorney's response is absolutely not. You know, they're not reliable. I'm not going to have her take a polygraph. She's too emotional. You know, it, there's no indication. It could be a mess, whatever those results are. Right. Plus it's not admissible in court. So, you know, to his benefit, you know, he's doing what a defense attorney should do. But, you know, when you say my client's not going to take a polygraph, everybody automatically thinks she's guilty. Mm -hmm. She has something to hide, right? Whereas I did not see it like that. You know, I went in with the uh, approach that, okay, so she doesn't want to take a polygraph. I'm not overly concerned about the fact that. So what happened was, and to go back to your question about why we kind of ramped it up, was the fact that, I knew she wasn't going to take a polygraph, but I also knew that I had to introduce stress into the interview and be aggressive to try to figure out if her questions and her answers were going to be the same, right? So I had to figure out a way to manage that. So one of the things I noticed early on in the interview uh, was that um, her daughter was always there during the interviews. And that's usually a big no-no, right? To have somebody there in an interview uh, when you're trying to get information, right? So again, any of us that have kids or any of us that have something that we hold near and dear, right? Her daughter was acting as her security blanket or her buffer against us, right? And so that was her level of comfort. And so I noticed that on you know, three or four of the different interviews, because again, I knew that she was a very close-knit family. So as opposed to introducing the stress of the polygraph, I came to the conclusion and kind of, you know, out of my own ass thought, um, I'm going to, and that is a valid uh,
0: investigative technique to pull something out of your own ass.
1: (laughs) It happens a lot, right? Some of the best police work comes right out of your ass. Um, but again, my thought was, okay, how do I enter, how do I introduce stress into this interview? Uh, you know, to figure out if she's going to still, uh, continue on that same course. So, um, I called her attorney and I said, listen, I am going to, and I had never raised my voice to her. I had never cursed at her. You know, I had never done anything outlandish. Uh, you know, I'd never thrown a telephone book or slammed anything down on a desk during the interviews with her. Um, but I told her attorney, I said, listen, my bosses are giving me pressure. I have to figure out a way to introduce stress into this interview. So I said, listen, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to scream and yell We're gonna make a massive deal. I'm gonna curse at her. We're gonna escort her daughter out of the room. We're gonna rip that bandaid off. You know, we're gonna rip that security blanket off um, and see how she reacts to it. And then I'm gonna answer some, ask her some very difficult questions and see, you know, if her response is the same. Right? I want to see if she's answering the same way, regardless if they're stressed in the interview or not. Right? Uh, From a psychological standpoint. So her attorney said, "Okay, go ahead. I I I understand. I know what you're doing." Good luck. So we went in. Yeah, we went in. We did it. And uh, probably uh, a couple hours in the interview, he's like, we got to cut this interview. And I said, why? And he's like, I'll tell you later. We cut the interview. (laughs) We leave. He calls me and he says, she has chest pains. She has to go to the hospital. So she gets transported to the hospital. (laughs) So I was certain that I knew I introduced stress into that Well, uh, I would say so. Yeah. And now
0: now with your bosses, though... this is a good point. I wanted to ask. You've kind of done everything they asked, but you still are not doing what they want. Like they want somebody to charge. Were you ever concerned that they were going to pull you off of this and put somebody in there more friendly to their ideology? That hey, we got to get, we've got to do something about
1: this. No, and I think uh, for two reasons. One, um, I had a very good reputation as being a good investigator on the department, so I think they gave me a lot of leeway. Um, but two, I think I also because I had. At that time, 20 or so years on the department. So I think because I was not a junior detective or a junior officer, uh, I think they kind of were more trusting of me. Even though they were telling me, like, this is our thoughts on this, when I would come back and tell them, listen, this is not what is actually going on in the room when I'm doing the interviews. Um, reluctantly, I think they were accepting some of the stuff that I was telling them. Right? Did you so- get yelled at? Um I'm sure at some point I did. You know the only time I actually got yelled at it's a funny story. Um so uh, you talk about pulling uh, myself off the case or getting pulled off the case. So the initial FBI agent that I was uh dealing with from Vegas that we were going out doing these interviews with um he uh, had his normal robbery duties so he got pulled off uh the interviews at the very end and I was working with the FBI LAX uh agent at the airport and um You know, She was a relatively new agent at the time, so she kind of defaulted to me as well and let me lead the investigation and let me lead the interviews. Um, But at the very end, I had flown back, and it was maybe after the fifth or sixth interview, but one of the FBI uh, assistant special agents in charge, so second in command at at the FBI Las Vegas field office, uh, pulled me aside and he said, Hey, Ken, um, I'm going to send out uh, our best interrogator from Vegas uh, to go out with you. And I don't know if it was maybe he didn't trust the results that we were getting or he wanted to try to switch it up or I don't know what the dynamic was. Uh, but he pulled me aside and jokingly, because he was a, actually a really good guy. Um, he pulled me aside and he's like, hey, I'm going to send uh, this other agent out with you. And he says, I'm going to go out and give you one last shot at this. And he's like, don't fuck it up. So this is the only time he ever yelled at me. And it was jokingly. Um, but you know, I think that they felt like, Maybe they wanted to switch it up. And by that time, the FBI behavioral analysis unit had got involved. But, you know, to me, oh, her- I came. So what
0: was the BAU, the behavior analysis unit? What was the BAU's view of the girlfriend about her, uh, you know, truthfulness, uh, deception, you know, uh, did it jive with your view of her?
1: It did. And so, uh, and this goes to kind of how my career ended, which, uh, you know, benefited me, is that, and I think having the background in psychology, I kind of knew, and we had worked, you know, I I spoke earlier about our two officers that had been ambushed and killed here in Vegas. We had worked with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit on that case as well, and they did a big workup on that case study on that case as well. So I had already had experience working with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Um, And it was one of my goals in my career was to go back to the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit and get certified as a threat management coordinator, which was a very rare thing for a local law enforcement officer to be able to do. Um, So when we were dealing with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit on the October 1 stuff uh, from Mandalay Bay, um, they had already worked with me. So they had already, I think, trusted me. And so when we were briefing them prior to the interviews on, hey, we had done three or four interviews before— They trusted, I think, I I got the impression that they trusted the interviews that we had already done before. And we had asked a lot of the questions, gotten ahead of a lot of the stuff that they had already wanted on that sort of stuff. And so when they came in, they were really just kind of circling back and kind of rehashing some things and really fine tuning some of the uh, kind of psychological autopsy that they were trying to do on him, um, to try to get a report out, you know, based on this. So, um, you know, again, kudos to them. They were great. They did not step on toes, uh, when I was there. Um, you know, they were really kind of passively, uh, collecting information as we were doing our interviews. Um, they were not in there, you know, kind of trying to uh, push us out of the way or nudge us out of the way as well. Um, they were very good to work with, um, and again, I think they really defaulted to a lot of the stuff that we did. So when we went back out for one of the final interviews and they had sent this other FBI agent, you know, who had, uh, you know, was supposed to be the best investigator in Vegas, uh, the best FBI agent interrogator, you know, we went back out. We got the exact same answers. There wasn't really any benefit for him to come out uh, from the previous uh, FBI agents that had gone out. And so when we came back, the special agent uh, in charge or the ASAC in charge said, hey, you know what? Great job you know, we didn't get anything else by sending this other guy out. So, you know, again, I was fairly confident that what we were doing was the right thing, uh, in dealing with this, uh, with his girlfriend.
0: Yeah. Cause the Bureau, I mean, a lot of people don't realize they think when you say BAU behavior analysis unit, they think of one, but now they've broken up into, they've got, I think five or six different ones. And I think BAU three is the one for adults. There's one for kids. There's one for, you know, they've got kind of specialties, which one, which one were you dealing with from this standpoint?
1: Yeah, so BAU1 is for terrorism and targeted violence. So, yes, we dealt with BAU1. So, um, you know, they came out and they, like I said, they were great to work with, and we'd worked with them in the past. Um, so yeah, they, I mean, they kind of circled it back and, you know, kind of cleaned it up for us a little bit at the very, very end. Cause you know, by the time we'd finished all the interviews, we realized we weren't going to get that smoking gun. We weren't going to find that manifesto. We weren't going to find that, you know, this is exactly why he did this, right? A lot of the things are what's called autogenic, you know, where he's kind of motivating himself to whatever he's doing uh, and why he wants to, you know, only he really knows the motivations for why he's doing this. And um, we really didn't find anything externally that was motivating him to do this um and so again i mean they, the fbi really cleaned it up for us um uh, on the behavioral analysis side and put out their own report
0: did this pos have any contact with the girlfriend while he was at mandalay bay was there any communication
1: yes quite a bit yeah uh up until even the night before because uh, we were they were communicating over whatsapp And so he had uh, talked to her and said something to the effect of, you know, uh, no-ish, because a a lot of media was portraying that he was, the reason he did this was because he was, you know, he would lost all his money and he was in debt and, you know, he had lost his gambling winnings and whatever, but that was not the case. I mean, his financial trajectory had gone downward, uh, overall. Um, but again, for most of us, he was, uh, fairly well off still. And he had sent a message to her in the Philippines, uh, the night before the attack that, you know, Hey, we're up, you know, X amount of money, several, um, 70, $80,000. It's all good. You know, no issues here in Vegas. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was communicating with her the entire time he was there and she obviously had no indication that he was going to do this attack.
2: You know, and for people that, whether you use WhatsApp or not, it sounds suspicious in that that that's an encrypted communication system. That's what I use when I'm outside the United States because it's free. I don't care. You know, I'm talking to my wife. That's about it. Maybe Morgan and I would communicate about the podcast. But, you know, there's nothing inherently suspicious just because they're using WhatsApp. It's just a way. I got
0: to say, your message from Saudi Arabia worried me, Murph, because it was all in Arabic. I wasn't sure what to make of it.
2: Uh, man I picked that language up just like that
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you guys mentioned that because he actually uh suspect actually called the girlfriend out on that because uh, they had been regularly texting and uh he told her stop texting and calling me on regular numbers because it does cost me money even though he had mm-hmm. you know hundreds of thousands of dollars still you know he wanted to use the whatsapp because it was free you know yeah. which was uh again and- <laughs> was really good, like end of life planning you know i mean if he's worried about Money, uh, you it's know, I exactly would point. Who you cares? Know, he's not really engaged in end of life planning, um, you know, or else he wouldn't have cared about, you know, calling her on the phone or whatever mm-hmm. else, right?
0: Well, yeah. or or worried about how much money he's up. Who cares? I'm gonna, I'm, yeah. if I'm gonna die, I don't care if I'm up or I'm down, but maybe Absolutely. I, do. you know, I don't know. So let's kind of put a fine point on this. Um, you interviewed her several interviews, several hours of interviews, hours and hours of interviews when you got done. Do you have any nagging doubts? Do you have anything in your mind at all, even then or today, that says she's involved in this somehow?
1: N- none at all. No. I think the only nagging doubt that I have um, that I think probably all of us in the case ever work was that one of the computers in his room had a hard drive removed and we never located it. So I think if there's anything that anybody would ever say that, you know, that's where the manifesto was or that's where the, um, you know, smoking, you know, proverbial smoking smoking gun was, um, you know, his letter or whatever reasoning why he was doing this um, would be, it would be on that. But again, we were never able to confirm um, that there was a hard drive in there. so. You know, he had um, ordered some hard drives. He had Googled, you know, how to remove some hard drives and stuff. But, you know, we had asked her that, you know, did he have the ability to remove that sort of stuff? You know, was he tech savvy? Um, She didn't believe so. But one of the towers in his room at Mandalay Bay did have a hard drive that was missing. So um, we were never able to find it and, you know, didn't have the ability. We thought of thousands and thousands of ways to try to uh, potentially find that, you know, up to and including... Uh, walking on both sides of the freeway all the way from Vegas to Mesquite uh, to check and see because we had dumped his vehicle GPS to find out if he detoured anywhere. You know, we had his phone GPS so we could tell, you know, what towers he was hitting on. So we knew his movements uh, his entire time while he was in Vegas Um, with the exception of maybe like 15 minutes or something, you know, going back and looking at all the cameras and everything, uh, looking at his kind of digital footprint. Um, But, you know, we talked about, you know, Walking that entire length of the roadway from Vegas to Mesquite to try to find out if he turned off somewhere and you know threw a hard drive out on the roadway somewhere. but you know again, I mean it would have the the, the manpower and the ability to do that is practically impossible. so yeah, um but you know we were you know it's it's things that we considered trying to figure out you know if and where that hard drive ever went. but you know, again, we were never able to kind of resolve that. Um, so I guess if there was any nagging doubt on the case, that would probably be the one thing that, um, you know, uh, anybody that ever questions me or asks stuff would be, you know, if there was a missing hard drive and where is it at?
0: So 10 months after this is over, the sheriff puts out a kind of a report, right? Saying, you know, here's what we found. Um, When we interviewed Ed Davis about the Boston Marathon bombing, um, he made an interesting statement. He said the case is still open. I mean, they they still believe other people are involved in the planning of the Boston Marathon bombing. Is that the report that was put out, the one after 10 months, and maybe it's been added to since then, in your view, is that complete?
1: Yes, I believe it is. Um, they, the, they've put out two. They put out a critical incident team report kind of, uh, I think fairly shortly after the incident. And then, like you said, they put the 10, they put another one out 10 months after with, I think, maybe 93 recommendations and after action report. Um, I know DHS put out a report and then the FBI behavioral analysis report, um, uh, came out as well. So in my opinion, yes. Um, do we still have people that call in and say weird stuff about October 1? Absolutely. I know that there was an incident uh, probably six months ago where there was a gentleman in Texas who claimed that he was corresponding with the shooter and had letters That he was uh, sending to the shooter, and they were going back and forth. Um, The media made a big deal about it, you know, that we missed this. And how did we not interview this guy? And, you know, how did we, excuse me, not pull these letters from this subject in Texas? And, um, but it turns out the guy was, uh, you know, a criminal, a con artist. Um, uh, He had been interviewed. Uh, The letters that he received were only. Uh, he only had copies of the letters that he sent to allegedly the shooter, nothing that he received back. Um, so there was no way to verify that he ever actually had any sort of correspondence with, uh, the shooter on this case. So I think it was just somebody, we saw this a lot in this case. And I think a lot of people and, and, you know, fast forwarding to the end of my career uh, with the UNLV shooting, you know, we, you get a lot of people that, um, want to associate With cases like this, you know, you get a lot of people that are wanting to associate with the macabre. A lot of people that want to associate with mass shooters and, you know, the serial killer obsessions that people have nowadays, right? Um, So we get a lot of that. So we had a lot of people that would call in and say, hey, I spoke to him four years ago and he said he was ISIS or he told me he was going to do this or whatever. Um, And so we spent a lot of time wasting resources, chasing these leads down from people that just wanted to say, I got interviewed on the worst match shooting in the United States history. They
0: want their dysfunctional 15 minutes of fame. They they know that if they do something like that, I can get my name in there. And it's it's so salacious and outrageous. The media at the state they're in right now, they're going to report it because it's something that drives clicks. It's something that drives eyeballs. It's something that drives attention. And sometimes, unfortunately, the more outrageous it is, the better it is.
1: Absolutely. And you're going back to his home in Mesquite, you know, after uh, that got out to the media that that's where he lived, we had a lot of people that were breaking into the home trying to steal trinkets and things from his home as souvenirs, <laughs> right? So we ended up having to get Mesquite PD to sit on the home for quite a while because the attorney would call and say, listen, the girlfriend says people are breaking into the home and people are stealing stuff from the home. So, you know, we, we dealt a lot with that. And, you know, I, I would imagine that, you know, other mass shootings in the United States, other police departments have had to deal with similar issues, you know, having to waste resources and um, divert resources to people that are, you know, suffering mental illness or, you know, want to just dis- detract from the investigation.
2: The, the sections of the media that criticized you guys about those letters, I'm sure they, they issued a public apology for accusing you of things accusing you of things yeah. that, that you right. didn't do, right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's hold our breath and see, uh, see what happens on that. Yeah. Didn't happen. Our department was good about it. You know, they, they kind of did not bite on it. Um, they put out a s- statement saying, uh, you know, the results of our investigation still, th- are, still are the same regardless of what this person's claiming. You know, we hashed out everything that we could, you know, I, I one of the things that I, I, I wish the general public knew was how hard we worked and how many hours we worked on this investigation. Uh, not just us, but you know, the entire community and all law enforcement and not just Southern Nevada, but you know, kind of West Western part of the United States, how hard we worked to try to resolve it and try to figure out what actually happened on this event. Um, and I think a lot of that goes unnoticed or unappreciated sometimes, you know, the sacrifices that, um, we made trying to answer these very questions that the public wanted us to answer. Um, Cause you know, they're not aware of the nuances of the case. And a lot of times, you know, it's law enforcement sensitive and they're not privy to a lot of the things that we're trying oh, no, to no, no, do. No. Just but,
0: get on Twitter. I can find you 10 experts right now on Twitter <laughs> or X or on Facebook. They know everything. They know what you guys did wrong. And boy, they absolutely love this case. Well, yeah. And, that, yeah. and
2: you know, that's what makes game of crimes here just a little bit different because rather than Morgan and I sitting here pontificating, what happened in Vegas? We got the man that led the investigation on here telling us what exactly happened. And and I love the fact that you brought the, brought out that the public was participating because I when we were doing our reading, getting ready for today's interview, I read that they collected so many pints of blood that they didn't need them all in Vegas for all the victims of the shootings. And I mean, that's kind of unheard of now that the community comes together like that.
1: Yeah, so Vegas is a very transient community, right? You have people from all over the country that end up here, and I mean, you have very few people that are you know Vegas locals. Um, but I can say that you know the the amount of community support that we got, and not just after the event, but you know during the event, the amount of people that you know tried to triage victims that were shot, the amount of people that transported victims to private uh, to hospitals in their private vehicles was amazing. I mean, the the community bond that came, you know, I, I'd been in Vegas since 98 and it never really felt like a community. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, the tragedy has brought everybody together. Um, but I, I, you know, the uh, the outpouring of support and I think generally our t- police department gets a ton of support. You know, we don't have a lot of the problems that other cities do um, in dealing with community members and dealing with community as a whole, right? With community relations, uh, the outpouring of support that we received. I mean, we never, you know, we never had to want for food. Um, We had so much food. We had so many uh, people coming to visit, so many people thanking us. You know, it was amazing the outpouring of support that the community gave, not just to law enforcement, but to the hospitals and the nurses and, you know, everybody that was involved in, you know, being a first responder or being, um, you know, community support groups or mental health groups. Absolutely amazing. And it still continues to this day. Um, You know, we still have resources that are available with the uh, Vegas Resiliency Center that's still that's still open to this day that, you know, ended up supporting our UNLV shooting that we had several weeks ago as well, right? So, it continues to support our community. And, you know, our department, um, you know, is obviously extremely grateful for the support that we received during that time.
2: Well, not only all those heroes that you just mentioned, but the uh, the, the stories that you read about people who were there, I think I read one story. There was a a group of San Diego cops off duty there. Got it right. Yeah, I got it right
0: here. I was pulling it up. You've got San Diego, you've got Rhode Island State Police, you've got the U.S. Army National Guard, the U.S. Navy, the Marine Corps at Camp Pendleton, an Army soldier, even uh, Trooper Ross Woodward, a British soldier from the 1st Queen's Dragoon Guards. I mean, you had people, I mean, cops are cops, first responders. I mean, you got people running from gunfire and people running towards gunfire. And a lot of the cops, I even, you remember uh, the other half of Big and Rich, guy named uh, John Rich, the country singer? Um, they, they actually had, the, he actually had a weapon. And, but when stuff was going down, there's a guy came over to him. So I had a weapon, said he might have that weapon. I'm an off duty cop. And that guy took up point and protected everybody else using John wow. Rich's weapon.
1: Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot of, there's a lot of stories like that. When I teach, you know, a lot of people come up and, you know, say, Hey, we ask officers for weapons. You know, obviously you had a lot of off duty, um, military there. Um, you know, it's hard to equate what, you know, the crime scene photos and what you see there. I mean, it's not police work, it's war, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, you know, you have a lot of these uh, people that were at the concert that were in the military that, you know, experienced that in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. So, you know, they go right back into that kind of role of, you know, being a first responder on scene, regardless if it's official or not. But, you know, we saw a lot of that, um, again, people just trying to help everybody out with stop the bleed and, you know, getting people to the hospital. So yeah, it's amazing to, to see what, um, that community did for each other at that festival.
2: It's, there's, I read one article where even a, an assistant scoutmaster for the Boy Scouts of America was there, and he was awarded um, something from the Boy Scouts of America afterwards because of the bravery he showed and the assistance he provided to other people that had been wounded and trying to get people to safety. And, you know, I, we tend to always focus on the negative crap, you know, and what's going on rather than looking at, you know, the heroes out here, people who are still willing to sacrifice their lives for other people. You look at some of the photographs of this shooting. And you see guys using uh, their own bodies to cover yep. presumably their wife, their girlfriend, maybe a female family member trying to protect them so that if if a bullet did come down there, they would get hit first and, you know, hopefully save the, the person that they're trying to protect. It just reinstates your hope in mankind, you know, that the world's not full of 100% of shitbirds. You know, there are still a ton of good people out there that don't, Seek attention. They just respond when the need arises.
0: Yeah, and I got to tell you, and I don't, I don't think it was really based on Las Vegas, but I got to the point. You know, Murph, out here, things were going on. Things were getting more dangerous in DC, and I made some decisions a while back. Not just from a weapon standpoint, but in my vehicle, wherever I go, I've got, um, uh, you know, I've, I've got stuff just, you know, for inclement weather and stuff, but I've got a fully stocked first aid kit and I have a gunshot kit too. So I've got stuff in there for seals, for chest wounds, for stuff like that. Cause that's to the point, you know, you never know, you never know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And I just made a decision here a while back said, yeah, you know, when the music stops, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one left without a seat, not, not only from a self-defense standpoint, but from an ability to provide, Um, you know, care to somebody else. I mean, so that that includes carrying tourniquets, you know, that's the, anymore now, it's like tourniquets have saved more lives of cops than, um, you know, many other things simply because we talked to Claudia, Claudia Polinar, she was the deputy sheriff in LA that got ambushed during her partner, got shot, she got shot in the face down at the metro station, saved his life, putting a tourniquet on, you know, just.
2: John Mattingly in Louisville, Kentucky, after he got shot in the Breonna Taylor case, was tourniquet's what saved him.
0: Yeah. And that that was painful too. You talk about where they put that on his leg up near the family jewels. I mean, that mm-hmm. was like, he was, that's, that hurts. But hey, let's bring this to a close because we want to talk about the way, not the, not the case that ended your career, but the case you ended your career on, as you <laughs> said earlier. Um, <laughs> big difference. <laughs> big difference, right? Uh, but let's just put a final uh, nail in the coffin, you know, a stake in the heart of stuff. Um, let's just, for all the conspiracy theorists out there, give us your top, you know, three to four absolutes about this case and, you know, just knock down all these conspiracies.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, 100%, one shooter in the room by himself, no doubt, um, killed himself, you know, revolver, uh, into the mouth out of the back of the head, uh, no doubt whatsoever. No known association to any sort of terrorist groups, um, You know, no known motivation why he actually did this. But again, not multiple shooters. This is the one thing that I hear about, not multiple shooters. Um, You know, I've heard conspiracy theories about it. it was a CIA gun op gone bad and the Saudis were involved and all this nonsense, right? I mean, none of that stuff, right? 100% no doubt in my mind, you know, I've seen the photos. I've been there. I've talked to everybody involved. One shooter from the 32nd floor, Mandalay Bay committed suicide, you know, prior to SWAT entering the room, no doubt.
0: And as for the girlfriend, are you of the same conviction, 100%?
1: 100%, not involved. Again, aware of what he was doing, didn't know the context, didn't know that he was planning a mass shooting. Um, 100%, not involved. Nothing but pro-law enforcement from her and her family I have no doubt that if I needed to reach out to her to this day, um, I actually talked to her daughter probably um, at the five-year anniversary mark. I talked to her daughter um, just to check in with her. 100% pro-law enforcement, um, nothing to hide, gave us whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. Um, So no doubt in my mind that she was not involved in this whatsoever. How's she doing? So I think she still struggles with it. Um, I know that there was some talk about her potentially relocating uh, outside of um, the United States. I don't know to what extent, and um, not comfortable talking about where she's actually at. I know where she's actually at, um, but um, you know, we tried to get her to come talk uh, during the five-year anniversary as well um, for that episode that you talked about for Paramount. Um, uh, she did not have any interest in it whatsoever. I think she really just wants to kind of move past it all. Um, daughter says that she's, you know, obviously very religious and really relies on her religion to try and get her past, uh, to, to this event. But, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't obviously seen her in probably, you know, five or six years as well. Um, um, but, uh, you know, I, I keep in touch with her attorney and I keep in touch with her daughter, um, every now and then I'll just kind of check in to see how she's doing.
0: And then the final part of this, too, uh, you talked about there were a lot of recommendations, you know, after you do an after-action report. Um, Is there anything in your mind that law enforcement or intelligence could have done to get a clearer picture of what was about to happen?
1: I don't think there's any one thing. Um, You know, I I think... uh, As a general rule, I mean, it's the old adage to see something, say something, right? I mean, if something doesn't feel right, we want you to report it to law enforcement. You know, give us the opportunity to take a look at it. Um, You know, if we don't have the chance to try to uh, mitigate it or interject ourselves into the uh, situation, then there's no way that we can potentially prevent it. Um, You know, I I think it takes everybody to be involved, right? I mean, this incident obviously occurred at Mandalay Bay. Um, You know, we really rely upon. Uh, hotel security Um, there have been some fairly substantial changes that have occurred um, related as, or as a result of this event, you know, related to security in casinos and things. Um, But again, I, I think it's just the old adage of see something, say something. I mean, if something doesn't seem right or doesn't feel right, or it's off, even if it's a family member, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to come in and start arresting people, right? Um, you know, sometimes some people just need some mental health treatment as well, right? So it's, I think law enforcement is really getting away from the old adage that we're going to arrest ourselves out of some of these problems. And, uh, you know, that's not the case anymore. So I think people are worried about that, especially when they're potentially reporting on loved ones, um, that that's going to be the approach that we take in law enforcement. And, uh, you know, it's certainly not the case in Las Vegas.
0: Yeah, you can't, you can't, if you don't say something about it, and it's anymore, it's not if you see something. Say something. It's if you see something, send something. There's a proliferation of way to leave tips and do other stuff. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So let's do that. Hey, so I know. Let's um, let's now close out your career. Let's we're going to end your career for you now. We're going to be good. We're going to end your career. But uh, but again, you know, we, we as as it as goes, the thing we have a little jokes. You know, we have a little fun here, but we, we're deadly serious about this. And um, you're you're basically two to three days away from retirement. I mean, you've survived a lot of stuff, and then you've got another mass shooting to deal with. Yes. So, walk us through it. I mean, you, you, it's it's like what goes through your mind? Are you thinking, "Oh my God, I hope it's not a Mandalay Bay all over again"? Or,
1: well, so I um, so my last you know four years of my career, I was uh, the program coordinator for our threat assessment program. So we were really focusing on. Um, trying to identify people that were on this pathway to violence um, that were exhibiting these concerning behaviors and really trying to off ramp them. Right. And try and get them off. You know, they're wanting to commit a mass shooting or mass stabbing or mass attack or terrorism, whatever. Right. So we have a, you know, a, a very, uh, robust, well-respected program, uh, at Las Vegas Metro uh, for threat assessment. Um, so that was my last four years. Right. Uh, so, uh, it was very difficult for me because I loved my career. I mean, I was able to actually apply my degrees and, you know, build a program that was nationally recognized and well-respected um, in the threat assessment world. So, um, you know, fast forward to the UNLV shooting. Uh, ironically enough, uh, I had essentially processed out I had turned in my rifle, I had turned in my helmet. Uh, I had my handgun and I had my ballistic vest still right cuz you never know. So I figured well I'm going to keep what this still. When
0: you stood in line I got the badge, I got the love and I, I got the badge, the gun and the love of Jesus in my pretty blue eyes. Yeah, that's, that's all you pretty, had
1: <laughs> pretty much what it was. So when I I had my um I had my FBI car that I you know I was able to keep still towards the, till my last day. Um so I was uh I was set to have a retirement ceremony on a Wednesday. Um So I was actually, uh, I had got up early in the morning and, you know, was really winding down on my career. I had, you know, I kind of, I don't want to say checked out, but I'd really realized like, I don't need to expose myself to anything else. Cause you know, you see these stories of police officers getting killed, like their last week of work. And you're thinking, what were you doing out there? You know, why weren't you just sitting in an office somewhere? Um, So, and I didn't really think about it until it actually happened to me. So, uh, I'm actually, I had just taken my retirement photo from my ID card for the police department.
0: Was it in front of a pirate ship? It was not in front of a
1: pirate ship this time. It was in front of a yeah, it was that police headquarters building. So it did not end, but that would have been a fitting end. Um, so I was actually, I had just taken my retirement photo, and uh, it's in another building on our headquarters campus. And so I was actually walking back over to uh, our uh, fusion center where my office is at, and we're on a group chat. Our counterterrorism team is on a group chat, and I started getting text messages about active shooter at UNLV, active shooter at UNLV. And I think it was probably about, I don't know, maybe 10.30 in the morning or something. Um, And so, you know, you give a brief pause about, okay, well, I'm here at headquarters. I could do what I did at Mandalay Bay and stay here. I go to headquarters building and start the investigation. But at that time, it it was still very dynamic. And I knew I was only about 10 minutes away from UNLV. And so um, I got in my car, I threw my vest on and I'm like, great. You know, and the whole, the whole time I'm driving there, I'm not thinking active shooter. I'm not thinking, you know, what is this going to look like when I get there? The whole time I'm thinking if I get killed, my family is literally going to kill me again. (laughs) If I get hurt, you know, as I'm driving to UNLV. So, you know, I'm rolling code three to UNLV. I knew, We had been working some stuff on campus and, you know, we had been building UNLV's threat assessment team. They have a threat assessment coordinator now. So we've been really working with her quite a bit uh, to try to get her up to speed to build their capacity at UNLV and in the kind of university system in Southern Nevada. So I'm driving there and I know I have to approach from the strip side because uh, if I approach from the uh, east side of campus, it's going to be on Maryland parkway and it's going to be blocked. So I knew everything, everyone's going to come there and, you know, block up the cars and nobody's going to be able to get there. So I end up coming, uh, from the west side of campus, through some service roads, because again, I had just been on campus working some other stuff, so I was familiar with how the service roads work.
0: And we forgot to put in context, everybody. This was December sixth of twenty twenty-three. Yes. I mean, this yes. this is this is on the day that we're recording this. This is little, just a little over a month ago, maybe five weeks ago when this happened. Yeah.
1: So, and and I had had set to have my retirement celebration on the 13th, so a week away. Um, so I only had one, two, three, I only had four working days left, essentially. Um, so I'm I'm headed to UNLV. I'm rolling, you know, lights and sirens, code three. I throw my vest on. I have my handgun. You know, I put a couple of mags on my belt just in case. Um, I end up jumping in behind a patrol unit that's getting on campus right about the same time as I am. We're screaming through campus i mean probably doing 80 on streets we should not be doing and it's it's surreal to me because i'm driving on campus and i'm seeing students walking there and they have no idea what's going on several hundred feet away from where they're at so i get to the area where the student union's at um it happened outside of a area called beam hall which is their business uh bu- business building so as i pull up i get into a stack with uh a stack of police officers, a uniformed police officers who, you know, I have no idea who they are. They're just uniform. I don't. They're younger than me. I don't know who they are, um, but I have my vest on. So we we go up. We approach. Um, as we approach, I mean, uh, the suspect was down in front of the building already. He had been shot by two uh, amazing, uh, heroic, uh, plain clothes uh, university police detectives that were in plain clothes that uh, that saw him and engaged him and killed him as he was coming out. Um, so, I get there uh, you know i 'm the first investigator on scene again, and i 'm thinking, okay, this is a much different dynamic because now i 'm not on the investigative side now i 'm on the actual response side, so I was able to kind of see that but i, I you know i 'm thinking I never thought that I would have had to have had do this again in my career right in the span of what uh, seven years. Uh, I never would have dreamed it. so I get there, I secure the crime scene, and we start you know putting up crime scene tape um, Lesson learned from uh, Mandalay Bay was that, you know, we're always taught don't contaminate the crime scene, right? But I also know that we need to find out who this person is to find out because at the same time as I'm there, the radio is screaming again. I'm going right back to the Mandalay Bay shooting. It's in my mind. Um, The radio sounds the same, the chaos is the same. Uh, You know, we're hearing multiple shootings at multiple buildings around campus, right? And the student union is right next to the beam hall where majority of students are going to be hanging out, right. Having lunch or whatever else. Um, so I hear, you know, shots being fired as officers are trying to breach doors and windows and glass and get into buildings to try to clear some locations. And, you know, students are all kind of screaming and coming out of the buildings and I'm trying to direct them away from the body because the, the UNLV, uh, shooter took a round in the head and I mean, his half his head was gone. So, um, you know, it's something that I don't want students to see, right? If they don't have to see it. So I'm trying to direct students to, you know, look right, look right. Don't look at the body. I don't want them to have to experience that, right? They've already had enough trauma. So, um, man of securing the crime scene, I end up, um, going through the suspect's property, find his ID. I find his, uh, university card from a university that he taught at, um, Eastern Carolina university back East. I immediately take photos of it. I send it to our undersheriff, Uh, I sent it to the FBI and I sent it to our um, fusion uh, center and our counterterrorism lieutenant to try to start, you know, again, now I'm right back to Mandalay Bay where we're trying to figure out who this person is. Are there multiple shooters? And uh, you know, then again, you know, here I am right in the mix again, you know, four days before I'm supposed to retire. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at and that's still an active investigation. So um, can't discuss it too much, but um, you know, I certainly can't, uh, take away from the actions of the university police uh, detectives who were plain clothes and, you know, had no vest or anybody that responded and, you know, were able to take out the, uh, the subject uh, before he was able to kill anybody else.
0: Yeah. And again, in keeping, we're not going to name the POS, but it, 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 people can go to the news and they take a look at it. But apparently this guy, a couple things about it, he had a hit list. He had a target list because mm-hmm. he was apparently not a very popular professor at Eastern Carolina University, ECU, which I think are the pirates. Am I right about that? The ECU mm-hmm. pirates? Yeah. yeah. Um, and But it showed, a couple of the reports showed that he had a fixation on Las Vegas to the extent, if you can answer, is there any indication that the Mandalay Bay shooting was in anything related or it was in any of his, want to say, thought processes about this?
1: I We have not seen that. So to my knowledge, it was not any indication. It seemed like the, from what I uh, saw before I left, the fixation was on the kind of glitz and glamour of the city. Um, not necessarily the draw of that Mandalay Bay thing, Uh, the Mandalay Bay shooting. Um, It didn't seem to appear in anything that I have seen. Um, But again, I've been a little bit out of the loop for the last month until I go back um, on the 16th. But um, yeah, to my knowledge, no. It seemed more of the glitz and glamour and lifestyle of the city as opposed to the uh, mass shooting itself.
2: You know, And doing a little bit of research on this one, it looks like he had a uh, a real he's an egomaniac he had a real problem with anybody that questioned him and you know this is armchair quarterbacking i've been retired a long time now but just based on what little bit i could find you know the fact that when he was at ecu uh, students you know there's a there's a website i mean our daughters use this when they were in college to when you're picking your professors you know, I can't remember the name of the website, but they're looking at it to find out it, what's the student's reaction. Is he is he personable? Is he a jackass? You know that kind of thing. And whenever this guy would get negative reviews on there, he would point. He would call out names in class. I know who you are, and he would th- do things like point at an empty seat. And, you know, they sit right there and they're not here today. I mean, is that the way for a professor to act? You know, we, we where everybody has freedom of speech here, and you can have your own opinions, but he's taking everything personal. So it sounds yeah, like, you know, this is all hindsight. This is all armchair quarterbacking here. It sounds like that just continued to to build in his life until he got to the point where screw it and enough's enough.
1: Yeah. Because it's an active investigation. I hate to step on the toes of the guys that are currently right. working it now, but, um, I would say that, you know, uh, from my opinion on the threat assessment side that he clearly had a fixation uh, with the student reviews. Um, They're clearly, you know, he had applied and again, this is all out in the media. He had applied for numerous positions with uh, Mm -hmm. the the university system in Southern Nevada and could not get hired. Um, There were some financial difficulties going on with him. So, you know, he started to exhibit all these same things that we teach on threat assessment, right? I mean, he had a grievance against Maybe not necessarily UNLV, but I think he definitely had a grievance against the educational system. Yeah, absolutely. He's got the addiction Um, notice.
0: He's got financial stressors. You know, he's got other things that are going on.
1: All these things. So, you know, when we look at it, and again, when we start using these assessment tools that we we look at, um, you know, he meets a lot of the criteria. And so, you know, again, had we have been notified of his behavior— you know, and I actually just uh, went and uh, presented at um, USC uh, in uh, Los Angeles, um, just briefly talked about threat assessment in the context of this case as well. Um, you know, he meets a lot of the criteria. And, you know, the question is, is that... Would the universities have caught on this, right? I mean, somebody that's applying so many times to a university and not getting accepted, you know, does that cause any bells or whistles to go off uh, where somebody should say, hey, should we maybe take a look at this person? Um, Because, you know, he sent 22, I think it was 22 letters um, uh, to academic people around the country um, the letters had white powder in them as well. So, you know, you can imagine the chaos that he was trying to cause if we had not caught those letters and they had actually gone out to people around the country. Um, so yeah, I mean, he had a long standing, it's, it's what we call grievance based crime. You know, he had a long standing grievance against academics and academia and universities and educators, um, around the country you know, that uh, ultimately came to a head as a result of, you know, probably numerous factors in his in his personal life.
2: What, what just another freaking sicko out there.
0: Well, and, and this is the way that these people handle this. They handle their grievances by getting back at people who had absolutely nothing to do with the current situation they find themselves in. But it's the only way he can project power. You know, it's the only way he can... Exert control over something. And it just, you know, just thank God, you know, you don't want to say thank God that there's only three people killed, but with the amount of ammunition or four people, three, pe- no, four people, right? Yeah, four. Three and him. Three killed. That's right. He doesn't count, right? So three killed. Um, with the amount of ammunition and stuff that he had, he could have kept going, like you said, had it not been for those two detectives. And let me tell you, it's scary. In fact, there's a, video I just watched on X earlier, but it's about two officers struggling with the guy in a car. He's actually got a handgun on his left side. He starts to reach for it. I mean, it is an intense firefight. And these folks mm-hmm. have the body armor on already. Now you're talking about approaching somebody an active shooter. You've got no body armor on, but you still you know, that's the active shooter, right? That's what we learned from Michael Collazzo and in Nashville. You've got to go to the stimulus. You got to engage. There's no more, let's no, let's not let's not do like the pussies did in Uvalde. And I say that it matter. I say that specifically. Who waited around while kids got killed? Sorry, guys. This is what you signed up for. You know, this mm-hmm. is what you're paid to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those university police officers. Again, I mean, they. I can't commend them enough. They were out there playing in business attire. You know, with very minimal amount of uh, magazines, and they went right to the uh, to the fire. I think it was. less than a minute or right about a minute before they were you know from the calls came out to when they were actually on campus and engaging so yeah i mean they did an amazing job so yeah it's uh it's something to certainly be commended about and you know it it goes to the uh i think the level of cooperation that the university has and our police department has and you know how well we all work together
0: well
2: you know go ahead Murph. i think there's a um a stigma. It's it may be old school now. It may be gone, but I think there was always somewhat of a stigma that university police college police officers were uh, glorified security guards, or they were retired police officers that couldn't get a job anywhere else, and they're just there to you know to carry a flashlight and a gun.
0: Right, uh, What I'm
2: what we're seeing now, more modern day, is that there are some extremely professional police officers on the college campuses. You know, our oldest daughter went to. Uh, uh Commonwealth VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond for the last couple of years. And and when she was going through orientation, you know, my wife and I went down there and and uh there's a police officer in there and I went up and spoke to her. They have the second largest university police department in the United States at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. You know, over a hundred cops there. And and she made a point of talking about how they work hand in hand with Richmond PD because VCU's it's located right on the edge of the hood. It's not the best area in Richmond. Have you
0: seen the they crime, crime stats? Or I'm surprised you allowed your daughter to go there.
2: Well, hey, she went there and kicked ass, so she was on the dean's list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, UNOV
1: UNLV is not in the best area of town either. So, I mean, once you get off campus, it gets pretty dicey too. So, yeah, so you it's know,
2: it, we, university cops are not somebody to be looked down on. They're, they're as professional as a lot of the police officers out there in the regular metropolitan police departments and sheriff's offices and state
0: police. And the way the threat environment has changed, they have to. This is not yeah. the this is not the day when I went to college. And look, I, I liked our campus police where I was at, but basically they did. You know service calls, right parking tickets, just respond not anymore. the threat picture is far different now. campuses are soft targets, and these people mm-hmm. know it, and they start they start targeting it wait look let's let's bring this to a close um but let's end up with some final thoughts so um you know you when you look back on uh, Mandalay Bay and you look on anything um, what in you know as you take lessons from that, what for you? Is the biggest lesson you're going to take away from that as you go into your new roles and as you start using, you know, applying your old your skill set that you have and stuff? What's what are a couple of the things for you? How has this personally affected you? You know, and and what do you take with you out of this into your next job?
1: Yeah, so I I think personally, um, it's a very specific thing. You know, I. obviously we all have trauma, right? As we go through law enforcement and, you know, it's kind of cumulative, right? It builds upon uh, all the different cases you see and all the horrible stuff you see in law enforcement and changes who you are as a person. Um, I know for me, you know, I will go into a crowd if it's Disneyland or a Vegas Golden Knights game or wherever it is, and I will see that one person that looks like the shooter. And I'll say, man, that looks just like him. And I know that that's a result of... Psychological trauma of having to have dealt with this guy for so long and have you know have it consume so much of my life um, during this case, right? So I know that that's still a remnant, right? And so I'm aware of that. You know, um, it's just something that happens, right? I, I inevitably, I see it, and somebody looks like the bad guy, and it it takes me right back there. Um, I I think for my new role, right, um, which you know uh, is going to be a very similar type dynamic, but which is a different agency. Um, I, I cannot stress. Enough the value, and it's really a massive paradigm shift in law enforcement that you know these people that are engaged in these acts they exhibit behaviors. You know, some of this stuff is preventable, you know, they are uh, somebody is seen. You know, they're writing. Somebody is seeing behavior that is anomalous. Somebody is seeing them engaged in in stuff that well, they're is putting on it this. on
0: social media. Many of these folks are predicting, are you know, are are broadcasting the fact that they're about to go do something because they put it on Facebook or Instagram Absolutely. or whatever
1: else. Yeah, and so I, I think the the biggest value and takeaway that I see, and something that I will certainly, you know, my new role is is very heavy on this, and I, I would certainly advocate this to all law enforcement, anybody that's listening to this, whether you're law enforcement or mental health or a private corporation or workplace violence or whatever it is that these people exhibit um, identifiable, recognizable behaviors. So. If you can recognize that behavior, it potentially gives you the ability to interject yourself and address those behaviors, right? To try to prevent some of these things from going on, right? Um, So, again, the threat assessment, the threat management roles, you know, the building of threat assessment teams uh, in police departments, in private sector, there's such a huge value I see in that you know, and a lot of cops are reluctant to do it because it's a lot of touchy-feely. It's a lot of social work. You know, it's not the traditional type of law enforcement that we, um, you know, have seen in the past, probably ten years or so. But I really think that the shift is really moving towards us, at least having to have some awareness and some visibility in threat assessment principles and threat management principles uh, from the beginning of our careers, so we can start to identify some of these people that are having these uh, struggles and try and address them. You know, whether it's from a um, a psychological perspective, a social work perspective, or from a law enforcement perspective—you know—it's a lot of things. That we we have to really start. If we don't even see them, or we're not even recognizing these behaviors, or we're not teaching each other to recognize these behaviors. Then you know we're already way behind the curve, and there's no way that we're going to be able to prevent them. So and
0: in your new. Go ahead, Murph.
2: I was, was going to say that for our listeners, that's that's coming from someone who's gone through it, who's been there and done that. That's not. Somebody like me sitting back, armchair quarterback, well, this is what I think. That's what, this is what should happen. This is from somebody that's actually experienced the worst mass shooting in the United States was the lead investigator, and then just a few days before retirement has to go through another mass shooting event there in Las Vegas. So, you know, the words of of your experience carry a lot of weight, and you're exactly right. People ask me all the time, what are we going to do about these mass shootings? I don't know. I've been retired too long. I don't know how to handle this. So thank you for saying that. And there's one other thing I want to point out that um, you were very reluctant to take credit. You you didn't want to toot your own horn. But every cop I know, and I would have been guilty of this when that when that call went out for the Mandalay Bay shooting, and I had scrambled out from home, I would have scrambled right down to the shooting site because of your experience and your forward thinking abilities. You knew where you needed to be, and that was the right call to get things going because you knew what was going to be expected. You knew they were going to have more than enough help down there. I mean, well, even when we talked to uh, Deputy Chief McBride there about the shooting, but they had over three hundred police officers from, you know, a hundred at one hundred up from
0: you know two states away. It seemed like yeah,
2: it was it was outrageous because that's what cops got. cops run towards the sound of the bullets that's or the gunfire. So, you know, I want to toot your damn horn for you that you (laughs) made the exact right decision because somebody had to take control and get control of that chaos. And even then, you met it's 48 to 72 hours before things calmed down to where, you know, you could talk to somebody without (laughs) pandemonium and chaos taking over. So it's, it's, uh, and I know Morgan's going to close it out here, but I just want to say thank you very much for coming on uh, and being honest and giving us as much information as you could. Uh, thank you for your service to the people of Las Vegas. And, and, you know, as a true patriot and hero, you're not giving up just because you retired. You know, I like to say just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths expire. And we're seeing that you're getting ready to move on. And We can't tell everybody where you're getting ready to move on to. Maybe we'll once one day once you move there. <laughs> but it's coming up pretty quick. Uh, so just I, I can't thank you enough for the service to your community, to our country, um, to your family. Um, I hope you're going to be in a safer position, you know, so your family doesn't have to worry so much about you.
0: Yeah. Speaking of being in a safer position, will you be carrying a gun in this new position?
1: I will not be. No, I will be a civilian and I will be, um, I'm trying to dance around it a little bit. Uh, I will be in... I will be responsible for uh, terrorism and targeted violence prevention. So I will be more on the preventative side as opposed to the operational side. So again, very similar uh, skill set, but um, just for a, a different, uh, much larger agency. Well, Cause I was going to give you
0: a piece of advice next time. Have a go bag packed with clean shorts, clean socks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny. Cause we, uh, we, we talked about that several times in our unit and uh, yeah, the guys give me shit about that. Um, but yeah, we had to end up, uh, Tram- trampling down a a very seedy street in LA to try to find a toothbrush that night <laughs> the first time we got there but lessons learned uh but you know again I I appreciate you guys letting me on and you know sharing my story and uh you know Stephen hindsight, you know I was very blessed to have wonderful cases and wonderful opportunities to to serve Vegas and serve uh, the United States uh on with both metro and uh the FBI side so um, yeah, I mean, I, I I was blessed. I wouldn't change anything in my career. I loved taking the high profil, profile cases, and I, I I always enjoyed the challenge of of trying to resolve them, uh, you know, with an arrest or whatever else uh, needed to be done on the case. So, well, I thank job. you for that.
2: This, no, excellent uh, job, and, and just uh, one final shout out to to your cousin Bruce Gettner. Bruce, we love you, brother. Thank you for the introduction
0: here. Yeah, Bruce, make sure you clean your shorts. We're going to have you on the episode here pretty soon. So,
1: <laughs> Hopefully, Bruce will give me a shout out when he's on, and he can reciprocate it for me. There you go. This, we'll is, you can-
0: this is us saluting you. Thank you, Great sir. Great work. Don't go anywhere. You guys hang on. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, first of all, this is us saluting you, Ken, again, Mm -hmm. you know, he did, he did what needed to be done, which is organize this chaos into something Find, You know, the, the whole goal was number one, is he acting alone? Number two, and if he's not, let's find him. Number three, Mm -hmm. find out what the role of the girlfriend was. Make sure that there's no additional threats. Uh, He had, I mean, you know, you think about the enormity, how do you handle something like that? Just going into it, you know, how do you get your arms around it?
2: It's, it's horrific. and what, what I really liked about Ken, though, and I even mentioned it in, in, um, towards the end of his interview, was the fact that we are all, as cops, we want to help people. And when shots are being fired, you want to go to where the shots are being fired from and stop that. But here Ken, in his professionalism, knew that all these hundreds of other cops are going to be doing that. So where could he be the most effective? And you know what? He made the right decision that needed to be done immediately. Uh, he was able to, to uh, alleviate a lot of uh, confusion, false reports going out, just simply by going into the office and getting things started at that end. So, the, And and I said it before, this is a sign of, of experience, professionalism, and forward thinking. I can't imagine anybody could have responded any better than what kid Ken Meade did that day.
0: You know, and the other thing, too, is like you say, there's this urge to, I, I need to go protect something and do something. You know what? He would have been one of a few hundred cops out there. In fact, off-duty cops from all around mm-hmm. the United States were there, too. Some of them got citations for the work they did. But there was nobody who said, hey, look, plant the flag. I'm going to lead the investigation. Yeah. Some people might say, well, that sounds kind of arrogant of him. I said, no, not from a cop standpoint. No, That's initiative. You're saying, I there is a job here that is yet to be filled. I'm going to be the one to fill it. We're going to get things started. Could he have been replaced by somebody? Maybe. But as you're going to find out, as you found out, too, he knows the shit, and he did an excellent job. And the thing I like we did, we put to rest this whole conspiracy theory about the girlfriend being involved. She mm-hmm. wasn't, mm-hmm. not in any way, shape, or form. And, I, you know, Ken has got more knowledge about this case than anybody, and he is 100% convinced and both firmly believes the girlfriend has nothing to do with this, nor did she know about it. That's how good of a job this POS, who will not be named, yep. did at hiding things from her. Was he buying guns? Yeah, but was, what were his intentions? To this day, nobody, we still don't know.
2: Yeah, and, and to Ken, you know, we said it on the show, we said it to you, and we're saying it again. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for for biding your time with us, for uh, just being straight up and honest, and then giving us all the time you gave us on this long, long interview, because it was worth listening to every single minute of this.
0: Yeah. So, guys, um, we hope you enjoyed that. If you do head on over to Apple Spotify, tell us what you think of the episode, you know, get hit those five stars. Also, head on over to the website, Game of Crimes um, We've got a lot of stuff there, obviously, books, merch, you know, pictures of other episodes. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We provide a lot of content, probably more content there than we do on our free podcast. Just check it out, and also go to Facebook. Type in Game of Crimes fans. Join our uh, fan club run by Sandy Salvato. So, guys, just get in there, help us out. But you know, again, this is a serious topic. We don't want to make light of it. But we hope that you guys learn something from this too. And one of the key things you learn is heroes come in all shapes and sizes. It just weren't the cops out there that were the heroes that day. You had firefighters. You had paramedics. You had citizens. Mm -hmm. You had off-duty cops. You had the entire town of Las Vegas responding to this thing, saying, "Hey." This is not going to stop us. It's not going to bring us down. You know, and, and to all of you freaking conspiracy theorists out there say there's a second shooter. They're covering things up. Go pound sand. That's my message to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Get a grip. Come up with a new idea. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. And I tell you what. And again, we feel honored because guess what? This is Ken's only interview, public interview. He's done a lot of briefings, but his only public interview on this. And I guarantee you, you will not find this anywhere else. Yep.
2: So thank you, guys. Thank you, Ken. Um, tell your friends about us, you know, bring them in, give us a listen, see what you think. We're open to all comments. So please let us know what you think about the episode. If you think we said something wrong or, or you think there's another conspiracy, let us know. We'll try not to laugh at you.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm out of the, I'm, I give zero fucks anymore about all of these conspiracy theorists. I've, 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 you know, used my allotment of those, but Hey guys, let's just bring this to an end. So we hope you're, enjoyed this just from the standpoint of learning and thank you guys once again as you understand this is truly the biggest baddest most dangerous game of all the game of crimes